museums taking up identities as places where wellness and health can also happen, I think that's the future of museums. Welcome to the March 14, 2019 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast Art Movements. This week, we have Zachary Small in the studio. Hi there. And Zachary, you just came back from Montreal where you were checking out the Terry Mugler exhibition, but then you discovered something really different at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so it was really great being there. And while I was looking at the exhibition, or rather after, I had the chance to meet with Stephen Ligari, who is the museum's art therapist on staff. That's, I mean, I never heard of that. Is that the only one of its kind? Yeah, so he's the only one of his kind. There are no other full-time art therapists. Sometimes they'll have part-time ones at other museums. But he's doing this for his full-time job, and he's been doing it since 2017. Now, he's wow. also practiced as a ther therapist since 2011, but this is a huge undertaking. <laughs> I mean... I have to say there's sometimes I've seen works that I wish somebody would help me work through, but this is a pretty unique take. So wait, how does this work? Can you just request the therapist to join you? I mean, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting program and it's one that Canada of all places is really spearheading. So they're actually setting up these systems where you can have a doctor prescribe you to the museum. Mm. Oh yeah, that's a trend. Weren't they also doing that in the UK? Yeah, so the UK actually started this and they're really... Um, the innovators of art therapy as a tool that started in the mid-1990s. And psychologists have since studied the effect of art on the brain and seen some really positive effects. So now what are we talking about? What's the scale of this program? Yeah, so in total, the museum's health, wellness, and community programs serve about 26,000 people a year. Wow. Um, and for art therapy, they usually operate in these closed groups, normally consisting of about eight people. And they treat around 1,200 in total per year, which is actually a huge estimate when you're looking at therapy clients. I mean, you're kind of blowing my mind with this idea that we're like, you're going to be going to the museum under the direction of a doctor to, to I mean, I, I love it. But at the same time, it's it feels so strange. Right. But actually, if you think about it, a lot of other creative disciplines are doing this. Of course, theater therapy is huge, especially yeah. for veterans. Right. But I think that this really kind of crazy, cool question <laughs> is, you know, can art be used as a tool for therapy? So I sat down with Stephen a few weeks ago to discuss his work and to discuss how art therapy actually functions in the room. Okay, let's get started. Let's say that I wanted to do art therapy. Mm-hmm. How do I get prescribed art <laughs> therapy? So I know this is something that's happening in Montreal, right? Yeah. The museum prescription was inspired by a movement in what's called social prescribing. Uh, this is, you know, kind of taken off more in the UK. And in looking at the literature, we see that uh, doctors were prescribing in addition to things like eat better and get out there and walk more often. They were prescribing social activities within the patient's community with the belief that that was going to accelerate their healing and give them opportunity for more agency. Mm. I am a participant in my healing. I'm not just waiting for something to be fixed for me. What are like the first questions you would ask me? I guess you could ask me right now. <laughs> oh. So I would first place an emphasis on welcoming you. Mm -hmm. If we're going to talk about safer spaces, we know that starts with the humans occupying those spaces. Mm -hmm. So I would pay attention to how your body seems to be responding to the environment. 
and I would try to attune myself to providing a place of comfort for you. Mm -hmm. I would then want to know your relationship to art, uh, including having none, which is fine, <laughs> and welcome. I have a little relationship to art. <laughs> As you can probably tell throughout this segment, I was a little bit embarrassed by these questions, so cue the nervous laughter. We'll capitalize on that little relationship. Perfect. I would say to you, so art therapy is a therapeutic practice where we can explore your feelings, mm -hmm. your memories, your desires, your mm -hmm. thoughts about yourself and about your life through making art and then also through reflecting on it. Mm -hmm. In art therapy, we are focused on the process of making art, of being in the art making and seeing what that feels like, and less on the product as something that we necessarily want to put a, a magnet on the fridge with. Mm -hmm. Though many people do find that they feel good about the art that they make and they want to keep it. Right. I mean, I'm very product oriented. <laughs> so I would ask you, is that something that you'd like to work on? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. Yeah. Uh, let's say yes. Okay. Um, so I might then select some materials that help us get started where you can create something fairly easily that mm -hmm. is a product. Let's say collage is a favorite. Now, collage is, is ready-made materials where you can project your identity onto shapes, colors, pictures, forms. I might give you a smaller format of paper to work on so mm -hmm. it's realizable in a short period of time. But further on in the weeks, if we would continue to work together, I might start inviting you to push outside of that frame, mm -hmm. to challenge yourself and see where you can become flexible in your own need to produce a product. So when I'm creating that collage, are you giving me any direction for my art? I try to evaluate how much the person needs that direction. Mm -hmm. Ideally, I want to give them very little direction so that something spontaneous or if I'm working more psychodynamically, something unconscious is going to emerge. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to leave the person blowing in the wind if they're having a terrible time. <laughs> I will support right. them as much as needed. So it's like a really nice version of a like art crit session. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I definitely put the gloves on. Mm -hmm. um, my goal is not to challenge you in the sense that you need to make art in a certain way. My challenge, my, my, the ways that I want to challenge you is to be more gentle with yourself, in your self-image, in your mm -hmm. self, sense of self as a creative person. But then also I want to know in reflection, what happened? What happened in those, that last half hour? What was that like? Mm -hmm. What thoughts were going through your mind? Do you have associations to that, those thoughts? Right. Um, were they fleeting? Often people will say, I wasn't thinking about anything at all. And that's a holiday for someone <laughs> living with a diagnosis. Right. After we're finished with the reflection, and I might ask some more guided questions. Like they, what? I might refer back to one of your objectives for the therapy in the first place and go, do you feel like what came up for you today is related to your mother? Uh, <laughs> I might not always ask the mother question, um, <laughs> but I, I will try to make links with why you came here in the first place mm -hmm. and what happened during the process. So the guided question might be asking you to look for those elements for yourself so that there's a consolidation and there's some integration of the experience. Mm -hmm. And so how do you recommend I take that session with me into the real world, besides mm -hmm. taking my collage home, of course? <laughs> Well, art therapy is about flexibility. In any kind of therapy, I like the idea that we're trying to help people remove obstacles mm -hmm. between where they are and the life that they want to have. And that's not for me to decide, that's for them to decide the life that they want to have. 
So if they've experienced even a little bit of flexibility with themselves, with their self-critique, with their sense of who and how they are, if they've experienced those moments, they can then apply those to the real world. Mm -hmm. They can apply them to the relationships that they're having, and they can practice, perhaps most importantly, naming and sharing their feelings, which is something I'm pretty sure none of us are encouraged to do. So in art therapy, one of my questions that I had going into the museum was, what constitutes good art from bad art? This is a question that us critics like to ask a lot, but what does that actually mean from a psychological standpoint? So now, does that even factor in here? Yeah, it turns out it really does. As you'll hear in my conversation with Stephen, we kind of go back and forth about what he chooses for his own patients. Um, And of course, I have my own ideas, but I'm curious, you know, what do you think is an artwork that would soothe your soul? My soul? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I would assume it would be a beautiful, soothing film or something of the sea, you mm-hmm. know, where I can sit in a dark room and sort of like shut out the world. But I don't know. What would it be for you, Zachary? I have been thinking about this literally the past two weeks, three weeks, and I have to keep going back to the work I have in my apartment I'm a little embarrassed to say it's a lot of Matisse reproductions. And I think that the cutouts are really soothing. (laughs) Oh, they really are beautiful. Yeah. So what is it about those, though? You know, for me, the sea, I think people understand why the sea could be. And I mean, it's not the only work that would soothe me because I I love abstract work, abstract painting to look at, which feels very soothing to me. Right. I think that's why I like Matisse and the Fauvist, because, you know, it's these beautiful planes Mm. of color in the palette. I don't know. It's not... Even the red studio room, it's not super violent. I don't know, there's something enveloping and very affective about it. But what about works that might trigger you, might scare you? (laughs) I think things with violence, Mm. you know? I mean, I I can't imagine that they're taking some of these patients. I guess that's what we're calling them, right? Do Mm -hmm. they call them patients? Yeah, patients, clients. Wow. So I'm guessing they're not going to be taken into a room where they're showing videos of people being beaten up. Probably not. Not the videos of people being beaten up. But yeah, they can definitely tackle some difficult things in therapy. So this is one of the things I talked about with Stephen. And let's just get right into it. Let's do it. The artwork that gets selected for visits, which can be anywhere between one and five works, Mm. depending on the group, the objectives that we've co-developed with our partners or our community partner, and the themes that are important to that group it will inform what we're going to look at. Mm -hmm. So we can either be very specific about looking at a subject like body image and look at everything from uh, ancient Greek art to contemporary representations of body, or we can appreciate that what our participants want is to move aside their diagnosis for the afternoon. And Mm -hmm. we can go into the romantic galleries and we can get lost in landscapes. Right. It really depends on what we hope the participants are going to connect with. Mm-hmm. That said, I recently designed a visit around going to see some Monet um, with a group of folks that all have a shared history of trauma uh, in experiencing aggression and violence towards them. Now, for me, it was an opportunity just to sort of bask in some color for a little while before we went and do the harder work of creating and discussing. One of our participants was triggered by the Monet. Mm. The darkened windows incited some, I would appreciate it as a mild flashback. 
And I supported him. I asked him to find uh, an antidote in the room that mm. could counterbalance that effect. And he was very quick to find a wide open landscape that extended beyond the borders of the frame. And he found comfort in that. So we never know. Art is more powerful than I know of yet. That's really interesting. I mean, people often talk nowadays, Zachary, about the impact of art and if it has the same resonance as before. So is that kind of what we're hinting at here? Yeah, it definitely is. I think that there's a larger question of if you stood in front of a Rothko today, are you going to be moved to tears in the same way someone might have 30, 40, 50 years ago? Right. Uh, so I really wanted to know from Stephen, what was the impact of art on his patients? The experience of being in front of paintings, sculptures, photography, installations, mm -hmm. I think has the opportunity to reach us on a variety of levels. Contemporary art is really stimulating on an intellectual level because we need codes, we need messages, we need a recipe to try to figure out what's going on with it. It's an exciting puzzle. Um, abstract, uh, abstract expressionist art still has the opportunity to allow us to, to bathe in affect in wonder, in mystery, uh, to connect purely on a visceral level. Um, and art history, let's say, if we're going to go look at the Dutch masters, um, there's a, a refinement and an elegance. Um, and I completely agree with you that sometimes these different eras in art history um, are going to be lost on certain audiences, either because one, our relationship to image is too accelerated, or two, we're coming from a different perspective. We're coming from a different cultural touchstone. Mm -hmm. And we don't see ourselves in the galleries. Right. That's not my face. That's not my family. That's not my culture. That's not my history. So when you work with patients, uh, is that something that you kind of screen for? So you can talk to someone and say, oh, this guy's kind of a Rembrandt guy. He needs a Rembrandt in his life. <laughs> is that the kind of conversation you need to have first? In some ways, yes, mm -hmm. um, without making assumptions. I don't want to assume that, um, you know, folks coming from our Syrian community necessarily want to look at Islamic art. Some of them are really enraptured by looking at uh, the most recent contemporary or modern art that we have. Right. That comes through relationship building. And I think that's something that we're always trying to strive towards doing better, mm -hmm. but it's something that we're also pretty good at. At this point in the conversation, I noticed that there were a few canvases resting against the wall of Stephen's office. These artworks were made by some of his patients. I asked him to show me some. There's some artwork sitting behind me that was part of an exhibition. So when artwork is scheduled for exhibition, we have a different confidentiality agreement. Mm -hmm. Everything that we do within art therapy is the same as any other kind of therapy. It's protected by confidentiality. Right. When it's scheduled for exhibition, we have a different confidentiality agreement. So it can be exposed, it can be shared, it can be talked about. Mm -hmm. This is a group of self-identified patients who had all been through the medical health system, who are now advocates within that system. Mm -hmm. They work as educators. So this was created by someone that went through the art therapy program, yeah. is what you're saying? Yeah. We came together, we co-created a project together, mm -hmm. they co-designed the theme of contrasts. Mm -hmm. Then my colleague Linda says, oh, let's go look at the contrast between symbolism and impressionism mm. as one of our <laughs> visits, right? So drastically different experiences. For the patients, they're looking at the contrast between before and after their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. How does life change? Then in art therapy, we're creating and recreating that theme. Right. So if we look at one of these works, can you tell me a little bit of, about it and the, the story behind it? Absolutely. So they're all 
potent. They're all quite charged with a witnessing. For this participant who had experienced TBI, so traumatic brain injury, and had a near-death experience, this work is actually called near-death experience, mm -hmm. or in French, it's called expérience de mort imminente. Right, and what we're looking at is a yellow background, a white mask. There's uh, some thread being spun to the mask's eye with scissors cutting it off on the side. And then on the other side of the face, there's this red blotch that's, I guess, it's really gruesome almost. Uh, it's, it's bleeding out of the head. Yeah. Right. So this was a really traumatic experience. Yes. And, of course, the trauma began with the injury and then was sustained through uh, different qualities of care. Mm -hmm. So when this participant is revisiting that experience, they're invited to do whatever they want. There's no, I work in what's called a very non-directive way. Mm. I don't ask the participants to make something specific. I invite them to kind of look at the buffet of materials available and let them go with that. But when we also turn this image around, ah. we see contained within the mask. What do you see there? Right, yeah, so in the mask, it looks like there's a, a family portrait hanging in the, the cranium. And then there's also this black felt that's coming splitting the middle of the head uh, and going to the eye socket. Yeah. Right. Masks are, both in theater and in, uh, in art, in art therapy, they are a really valuable material to often explore two sides of something, mm -hmm. that which is protected and hidden and that which is exposed to the world. Right. We can think of the divine comedy as uh, right. you know, the, the, the smiling and sad masks. Exactly. Right, or even Commedia dell'arte, where you have these stock characters that also are using the masks to convey these specific emotions or characters. Absolutely. You know, all of this is raising a lot of questions for me, particularly about what role a visit to an art museum could have on the road to becoming more healthy. Yeah, totally. And, you know, is this people's first time doing psychotherapy? Is the museum their first experience with a therapist to begin with? I had these questions, so I asked Stephen about that. When we're building a partnership, we're careful to evaluate the needs of each person. Mm -hmm. um, we anticipate, we hope that they're being followed, whether by their family doctor, by a psychologist, by a psychotherapist, by another creative arts therapist. Um, but at a minimum, they are held by their uh, community organization. Mm -hmm. So that when our program is finished, they have resources that they can return to. We are also hoping that they're going to stay connected with the museum. And that's where things like our open studio come in, mm -hmm. the Art Hive. Many of our participants have had experiences in therapy. Many of them have kind of come in as therapeutic experts themselves. Often it's the first time people are doing an art therapy though. And it's very special for me that they're doing it in a fine art museum. Normally I would have encountered folks doing art therapy for the first time in a school, in a private practice, uh, in a basement somewhere that because you know art therapists are really eclectic in the places that they work when you describe art therapy I, i've seen it described as curative therapy mm. what does that mean that's a charged word <laughs> i'm going to tap dance around it so i describe art therapy as a healing journey through the use of art and a therapeutic relationship 
It's maybe the shortest and best definition I've ever come up with. <laughs> art therapists believe in the containing power of art. Mm -hmm. So a participant like this can share something really traumatic and the art helps to contain it. It's not flowing out into the room and overwhelming everyone. We mm. can stay connected together. We right. can help each other regulate, but we can still go into the really dark corners of those experiences right. together as well. So for victims of violence, this becomes a really powerful tool within a toolbox of many other strategies for coping. Absolutely. Um, I don't present art therapy as a replacement for any other kind of healthcare practice. It's an ally, mm -hmm. which is probably pretty important Absolutely. for people to know. Absolutely. Right? Many people will choose art therapy because they've done talk therapy in the past mm -hmm. and have reached a certain point where they want to try something different. They want to learn to express themselves mm -hmm. and the complexity of their experience in a new way. It's not a replacement for talk therapy. We're not in competition with each other. Yeah. These are my colleagues. Right. Uh, but what we do is something different. Is there anyone that you've worked with where art therapy just wasn't for them? Oh, sure. And we even find that within our own groups. But this is the interesting thing of working in a fine art museum. We have participants who love the visits. Mm. They are so delighted by the opportunity to have one personalized access to the collection. So our mediators are working with them to really tease out their personal experience in response to an artwork. And it kind of unfolds something for them. And they may come back to the studio and go, oh yes, you know, I'll make something, but I'm not really an artist. But what that gives me information about is a part of themselves that they're not yet connected with. No two patients are made alike. There are many different types of patients that Stephen is treating at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. And this is after they're, again, receiving prescriptions from doctors. So people will come with various physical and mental ailments, anything from cardiac arrhythmia to Alzheimer's disease, epilepsy, really anything. So Epilepsy, I've never thought that would be something you can treat this way. I mean, what an interesting idea. I mean, like a lot of us probably have family members with a lot of the ailments you just mentioned. But the idea that a museum is the place that kind of healing could take place. I mean, I have to say I'm really happy to hear that, but I'm still surprised. Right. And I'm definitely no art therapy expert. I'm still learning a lot. But from my conversation with Stephen, what I really understood is, you know, there are many different ways to approach this. So, of course, and he says this, he's not looking at the neuro brain chemicals necessarily, but, you know... People have emotions. People deal with epilepsy in different ways. So maybe right. in that case, there are works that you can look at that can help you confront your disease and how it affects you. I'm just going to bring up something, you know, in the mid-90s in Canadian art magazine, and since it's relevant as Canada, John Bentley Mays, who at the time was a Globe and Mail art critic, he wrote a really fascinating article about how living with David Irvin paintings, who's a Toronto <laughs> painter, actually helped him through his depression. Mm -hmm. So I keep thinking about this now during this conversation, I think is really unique. The fact that Art does serve all these different kinds of purposes in our lives. Right, and it goes beyond illness. Stephen also works with immigrants who have just come to Canada, victims of violence, people with eating disorders, really a whole spectrum of people. So his job is really challenging and really interesting because he has to figure out what artworks are going to be perfect for that person and what also might edge them towards a deeper understanding of themselves. I love this idea. Let's continue with the conversation. Maybe if you could talk about one or two of those, specifically uh, about how you create an art therapy session. So, for instance, how do you work with someone with Alzheimer's? So the, the Alzheimer's programs are situated outside of the art therapy 
frame, if you will. Mm -hmm. These are more about well-being experiences and people living with Alzheimer's will come with a family member, a loved one. They'll have guided visit through the galleries that's again custom made for their experience. Mm -hmm. We're looking for associations, we're watching for memories, we're paying attention to any kind of spontaneous association and then we're giving them a pleasurable creative activity to do together for the afternoon. Some of those programs are assisted by art therapists coming with their organizations. When I'm building an art therapy project, it's often based on request. I'll use the example of a current research project we have for uh, women living with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. This came as a request from the foundation. So there's a local foundation, provincial foundation that provides services to people that are in treatment or in remission. Mm -hmm. And we met a bunch of times to appreciate the needs of their population. We ran a pilot project, which I facilitated. We asked questions to each individual ahead of time about what were their expectations, what were their needs, who were they surrounded by, appreciating the system that they're embedded in as well. We did an eight-week process that would come for three hours a week. Mm -hmm. We would go for five visits during that time. Again, looking at themes like a dream, as simple and as broad as a dream, mm -hmm. but that can be dreams that are lost, dreams that have yet to come true, dreams that are being mourned, or just the dream for the morning. You know, like, I, I'm just gonna dream about getting through this day. Mm -hmm. We then work through a variety of materials based on that theme, but participants can also leave it aside and just work in the here and now of what's important to right. them. And then we always have a reflection process. So we bring all the artwork back together. We bring all the participants back together. It's usually a maximum of eight people at a time to mm -hmm. really encourage that intimacy. And each person has the opportunity to reflect on their process, to reflect on each other's process while taking ownership of what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And my task is the same as any group therapy facilitator. I hold, I listen, I attune. I'll provide some interpretation when it's appropriate, but really that's not my objective. I really want to explore the work together. At this point, I started to realize I was probably taking up too much of Stephen's time. After all, he does have many, many patients to treat. I just had one last question for him. What was the most important thing he wanted people to take away from art therapy as a discipline? I would like to remind people that their connection to themselves as creative human beings mm -hmm. is an important piece of a healthy life. Um, and whether they do that through looking at art, through making art, or for using therapies, creative arts therapies, part of their health journeys, um, is something that is underexploited. The arts are nothing new. The arts and health are nothing new. Uh, we've been dancing since we've formed our first societies together. Uh, so reclaiming that as a way to connect is something so available. And I'd like to encourage your listeners to, to look in their homes, in their communities, and in their museums for those opportunities. Wow, Zachary, that was a really fascinating conversation. I mean, you know, it gives me a lot of hope that museums are not the traditional kind of temples on the mountain that people often saw them as. And the great news is that the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts is working with other museums across the world to implement these same strategies and programs. Wow, that's amazing. So now, before you go, I want to talk a little bit about the Terry Mugler Show. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that's something you just reviewed. And can you give us a little taste? Well, I'm still going through my psychotherapy about it. 
but it well, was, I mean, considering <laughs> Mugler's designs, I'm not surprised. Right? Yeah, it was a really interesting exhibition. It really shows you how important he was. I wasn't so familiar with his work mm -hmm. to begin with. I'm not a super fashiony person. But when you see the exhibition, you realize how much he's contributed to performance in the fashion world oh, and wow. bringing in these elements of Hollywood kitsch and mm. glamour that weren't necessarily there. It's interesting. He really does create this weird clash of counterculture with glamour. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, I always think of leather when I think of Terry Mugler. Was there a lot of leather? Oh, there is definitely a lot of leather and definitely a lot of references to kink in his work uh, and queer subcultures as well. Yeah, and when you get to some some of his more elegant works, you still see it, you know? Sometimes a beautiful gown is just not going to have a backside. That's fine. And that should be the way it is. So now, <laughs> any surprises in the show? I really wasn't expecting to have a whole room of fishy couture. <laughs> but there was indeed an entire room dedicated to fishy couture. Wow. Okay. That definitely makes me want to see it. So thanks so much, Zachary, for doing the legwork and getting up to Montreal for us. <laughs> Thank you. A special thanks this week to Dried Spider, providing the music for this week's episode. I'm Doug Bartanyan, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. There's no place There's no place for us